0: You're listening to, at any rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest themes in fixed income currency and commodity markets today. I'm your host, Phoebe White, head of U.S. inflation strategy within the fixed income research team at J.P. Morgan. And today I'm joined by senior global economist Mike Hansen, as well as our U.S. economist Murat Tashi, to talk about our outlook for U.S. inflation over the second half of the year. So just to set the stage a little bit, um, we've seen headline CPI inflation fall pretty sharply here from its peak to just 4% over a year ago as of May. Um, Core CPI inflation, meanwhile, has been pretty sticky. It's running at a 5% annualized rate through May. Um, And when we sort of look through the details, that stickiness has largely been due to a recent reacceleration in core goods inflation, uh, even as service price inflation has been moderating. Uh, Within goods, we can see that nearly all of the surprise relative to our own forecast can be attributed to this surge in in used vehicle prices that we've seen the last couple of months. Um, You know, used car prices had declined pretty significantly about 10% from its peak 18 months ago. Um, And coming into 2023, we expected some sort of modest further declines before stabilizing, um, but instead this component reversed 9% higher in the last two months alone. Um, So as we look ahead here, you know, it looks like most of that surge should reverse in the near term Um, that's based on leading industry data on wholesale vehicle prices, we look at things like the Mannheim used vehicle value index. Uh, So that should contribute to a pretty large step down in the run rate of core inflation uh, as we look through the summer. Um, But of course, this is a a fairly temporary source of of disinflation here in the next couple of months. Um, So as we smooth through some of that noise and volatility, I want to break down some of the underlying trends in inflation. So, Mike, help us understand what's going on here. Um, If we strip out the volatility we've seen in used car prices for a second and just kind of talk about the macro factors driving inflation. Um, let's sort of you know use the Fed's three-part framework here, and we'll start with the dynamics on the good side. Uh, how are you thinking about the recent reacceleration in core goods inflation, and where do you think it's headed?
1: Sure. Thanks, Phoebe. So I think it's useful to take a step back and, and think about what's led to goods prices coming off fairly notably, and then kind of how that's likely to play out, what that's going to mean for the forward path for, for goods uh, core goods inflation here. So we obviously have had some really significant supply chain uh, dislocations build up uh, last year and the year before. Uh, we have seen those ease quite substantially. You can see that in measures such as the global supply chain pressure index the New York Fed puts out. You can see it in data on uh, the cost of shipping containers across the, the Pacific. Uh, you even see it in uh, some of the PMI data. Uh, for example, uh, things that track um, backlogs and supplier deliveries. But uh, that source of disinflation is probably largely behind us at this point. Um, And there are some kind of potential risks on the horizon. So for example, we've got a a pretty notable drought right now uh, impacting Panama. So there's been some reduction in traffic out of the Panama Canal, which would certainly affect the the cost of shipping goods to the eastern uh, half of the U.S., Gulf Coast and East Coast markets. Um, you also, of course, had very significant uh, appreciation of the U.S. dollar uh, in the last year, uh, and that, of course, also weighed significantly on the cost of imported goods. Uh, but we've seen, really, since uh, September, October of last year, is about a five or six percent depreciation of the trade-weighted dollar. That doesn't yet seem to have been. Uh, reflected in import prices. So to the extent that import prices do react to that, obviously with a bit of a lag, uh, we could see some uh, renewed upward pressure in the kind of very near term, right? The sort of three to six months that we focus on in this piece uh, coming from that channel as well, right? And then finally, a, a good re- source of support for goods prices for a, a good chunk of the period immediately after the uh, onset of the pandemic was pent up demand, right? So. Uh, between uh, consumers not being able to spend and various sources of government and other supports uh, for consumers' income, you saw a really substantial surge in spending on goods that has largely slowed, certainly relative to services we we'll are talking about in a, little, a few minutes here. But at the same time, you're still seeing uh, overall consumer spending on goods running a little bit above its pre-pandemic trend. So that hasn't fully been exhausted either. So you put all these pieces together and we think that we could... You know, potentially see goods prices settle in a level a little bit faster than what they had been running prior to the pandemic when they were flat, to even uh, you know, averaging a bit negative. Um, and so while that's not, I think, the main source of inflation going forward, it is a, a sort of inflation that has had a, a lot of disinflation that's probably close to reaching the end and, and has maybe a little bit of upside risk as we went forward.
0: Yeah, but I think that some of that pent-up demand that's been lingering longer than we expected, probably contributed to the, uh, the car price story as well. Um, so sure. let's turn next to rent inflation as sort of the second prong of this three-part framework. Um, you know, it's a, another category that the Fed's been dismissing to an extent, um, even though it represents about 40% of the core inflation basket, the core CPI basket, um, because rent inflation and these official measures are notoriously lagged. Um, you know, we have seen a pretty large decline in the pace of inflation and more timely industry data on asking rents, for example. Um, so we expect that to gradually feed through, through to lower rent inflation in CPI, at least through the end of the year. Um, but sort of acknowledging that these official rent measures are slow moving, there's still been a lot of focus from clients around what we're seeing in the housing market activity. Um, you know, there's some signs of bottoming there, um, but there's also a lot of supply in the pipeline. How are you thinking about sort of fundamental rent inflation?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out from the, the standpoint of the CPI measures of, of rents or even broader shelter inflation measures, those should still continue to fall because basically that there's that backlog of high rent prices that are now running off. You think we're kind of what the forward contracts uh, on rents uh, were, you know, contracts were kind of showing. They've obviously slowed quite a bit. Uh, and so that's not fully yet reflected in CPI and things like the, you know, the uh, owner's equivalent rent measures. Uh, so that's likely to continue to come down to the point where by year end we're probably going to be running, you know, maybe 0.3 or so in a, on a month-to-month average. That's that's still a decently strong print, but it's obviously below where we had been. Say last fall when we were running more like 0.7. But in that broader context, I mean, you have seen uh, rental rates come up a, a little bit recently. I think that's gotten some people excited that maybe there's going to be a quicker turn on the r- rental CPI front. We think that's probably premature. Um, there's some seasonality in that data as well, so I think you to be careful about that. And then kind of bigger picture, as you pointed out, we have started to see the, the housing market in the US not only stabilize, but even start to show a little bit of life here. Um, you've seen a, a big move higher in, for example, um, the home builder sentiment index. Uh, you've seen some pops recently in um, construction and in new home sales. Um, so it does look like the housing market has uh, started to maybe turn a little bit of a corner here, uh, obviously it depends on kind of what the Fed does going forward. But that would you know suggest that, you know, over time, we get some stability in what's happening on the, on the housing market side of things. But I think for the horizon that we're focused on, uh, it's almost certainly the case that we're going to continue to see you know, downward movements. Uh, some people have focused on the fact that, as you alluded to, there's quite a bit of construction still uh, not yet put in place, but underway on the multifamily side. Um, I think there's a view there that that would put significant downward pressure on rent. And again, we think that's probably a little bit overdone. Um, we still think that demand remains, you know, fairly robust. Um, and given just how, you know, limited supply is overall, that's probably going to put a, a bit of a floor under how much rents or for that matter, how much house prices can fall.
0: Right. Okay. So, We've gotten gone through core goods inflation, probably running lower than the recent pace, but probably stabilizing above the pre-pandemic levels. Rent inflation gradually coming down through the end of the year. Let's turn to core services, excluding rents. Um, and before we talk about wage inflation and some of these other macro drivers, we also have to consider what's going on with medical care services inflation. Um, you know, I think this is a category that's gotten a lot of attention. Health insurance, CPI, has been declining about 4% per month since last October. October it's about you know a negative 40% annualized rate, um, but that is set to jump higher again um, into the fourth quarter um, based on the annual source data that BLS uses to approximate that quality adjusted health insurance premium cost. Um, so we expect this could add about half a percentage point to the run rate of core inflation starting in October. That should be a you know pretty significant jump, um, but sort of you know setting this distortion aside, Marat, let me turn to you. How are you thinking about core services inflation and some of the factors, um, you know, contributing to inflation in those other categories?
2: Sure, uh, thanks, Phoebe. Uh Yeah, so this is a, a category and a mechanism that has been uh, repeatedly emphasized by the uh, FMC participants uh, in, in the context of wage inflation, and the reason. Uh, is because we know that in this, at least this, in the services, uh, labor costs are disproportionately larger uh, part of the um, operating expenses for businesses. So labor market tightness or slack thereof uh, would be an important determinant of services inflation. Uh, and f- looking from that perspective, labor markets have been really tight. Uh, wages um, um, have been growing at a, a healthy clip. Uh, That uh, that has sort of driven the services inflation for a while. Looking ahead, though, um, in our baseline scenario, we see uh, a softening in the labor market uh, and a gradual uh, decline in labor market tightness. That uh, brings down services core services inflation. uh, In uh, as we sort of argued in the paper, uh, in the note Uh, now. There is one mechanism that might um, uh, offset some of this behavior, and that's, I think, uh, partly Mike alluded to earlier. uh, Services consumption has been below trend uh, for a while now uh, after the pandemic. It hasn't really uh, fully recovered to the sort of uh, pre-pandemic trend, uh, and goods have been running uh, slightly above it. Uh, So a gradual uh, sort of further rebalancing of that composition of the uh, aggregate consumption um, uh, and moving away from goods more to services might still, um, you know, pose um, some uh, risk. Uh, But other than that, I think the main mechanism uh, in uh, the the services inflation, we think is going to be the sort of tightness in the labor market. And as our baseline scenario uh, argues, you know, calls for a gradual softening in the labor market, uh, so is the services uh, inflation in our uh, near-term projections.
0: And how do you think about kind of near-term inflation expectations feeding into the inflation dynamic and the inflation process itself? Um, Mike, maybe if you want to touch on just kind of pricing power and if any of that has changed here.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, right? Because we've obviously seen a run up in the near term inflation expectations, not just of households, but but also of businesses. They have peaked and come off some, but they still remain a bit elevated here. And so there certainly is some concern, I think, amongst Fed officials and quite frankly, other central banks, that you could get into a situation that's that's not literally a 1970s wage price spiral, but nonetheless would involve... Uh, expectations become somewhat self-fulfilling in that uh, workers are able to demand higher wages and firms are uh, in a position to try to pass those on and so you get an equilibrium in which you're not really consistent with the Fed's 2% target, but maybe you're at three or, or above uh, for a while here. Uh, and so certainly the fact that inflation expectations, not so much on the long end, where obviously they seem to be well anchored, but at the near end, um are pointing in that direction that's a potential additional source of, of persistence here right as firms are, are certainly trying to do what they can to try to protect their margins um, in this environment so i think that's something else we want to keep an eye on
0: yeah and it's interesting because you sort of see evidence of that especially in the auto insurance component um, that is mm-hmm. a component that's been running close to a 20 percent annualized rate in the last three months Anecdotally, it seems like that's been an effort to sort of protect their margins against a backdrop of increased claims frequency, increased claim severity. Um, so, you know, the guidance we get from the uh, equity analysts is got, companies are guiding toward continued price hikes, uh, at least through the end of the year. Um, so, you know, kind of feeds into that story of, of companies retaining pricing power to protect margins. Um Okay. So we've gone through sort of the three prongs of of the inflation framework that the Fed's been using. I think you put it all together and uh, you come out with a forecast where core inflation is likely to step down here uh, as we move through the summer and through the end of the the third quarter, um, probably running close to a 3% annualized rate. Um, But essentially, investors should not take too much signal from that step down um, because we think that core inflation is likely to prove sticky near that 3% level. We could see it actually reaccelerate slightly into the fourth quarter. But Mike, as we think about what that means for the Fed and, and markets, um, how should we be thinking about some of the differences between CPI and PCE inflation here?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question because obviously while the markets give a lot of attention to CPI, given that it's released first, the PCE deflator is the measure that the Fed is you know, officially targeting and, and pays a fair bit more attention to, the one that shows up, for example, in their summary of economic projections. And there, it's kind of interesting because um, there's kind of two key differences, right? One is in terms of weights. Um, so, for example, housing has a much lower weight in the PCE than the CPI. So the Earlier, strength and housing didn't have as much of an impact on the PC, on core PC. Um, but there's also differences in scope. And that really shows up most significantly, I think, in medical services, which has you know pretty sizable weight in both components. When you think of these super core, right? You think of uh, your core services, X shelter or, or X rents. Um, medical services is the largest component there. Uh, and in those instances, um, you do see some pretty stark differences right now. And it basically comes down to the fact that CPI is only measuring out-of-pocket expenses uh, by consumers. The PC deflator, on the other hand, basically measures uh, any expenses on behalf of consumers. And so it's going to include uh, employers and importantly, it's going to include the government, things like Medicare and Medicaid. right? Um, and so what you've seen there is you actually have a um, in the super core, if you will, CPI running well below what you see in the PCE because of what you talked about earlier, maybe that medical insurance component uh, was a really big drag, right? So once it resets higher, as we're expecting to happen in September, October of this year, you're going to see some convergence of that. But in the meantime, PCE actually looks like core, super core is running uh, relatively strong. Uh, has shown a lot less disinflation than I think the Fed was hoping for. You see a lot more in CPI, in part because CPI jumped higher and then has come off a bit harder. So from the Fed's perspective, the progress uh, on the core inflation front, when viewed through a core PCE lens, does not look as compelling as the CPI does. And you certainly see that in Fed communications.
0: So Murat, putting all the pieces together, how should we be thinking about the Fed here? I mean, clearly... Uh, We've seen a big backup in rates today after the stronger labor market data this morning. Um, The market is priced basically for a a full hike for July. Um, Markets are priced more than a 50% chance that we'll get a second hike by November. Um, Our official call is, you know, one more hike in July. How should we be thinking about the Fed here and, and the inflation dynamics?
2: Yeah, I, I think for July, uh, it, it looks like it's a no-brainer at this point. Uh, everybody expects a hike and it's been well telegraphed by the uh, FOMC participants and especially Chair Powell. Beyond that, though, we um, I think it's definitely going to depend on uh, the incoming data. Uh, we still believe the, um, the two subsequent payroll reports uh, prior to the next meeting in September will show enough of slowing perhaps in the labor market that the Fed might be comfortable to go on an extended uh, sort of a hold pattern. Um, but uh, this, there are risks to this uh, coming from the labor market side, obviously. Uh, if we see uh, you know, very strong um, payroll reports uh, until then, then uh, Fed might uh, easily find itself compelled to uh, sort of act and respond to this, uh, that, um, like we said earlier, um, you know, developments in the labor market are gonna play a big role in uh, core services inflation. uh, And that is a key um, uh, metric that uh, everybody is looking at. As much as, um, you know, like I said, for the July, I think um, there's not much discussion, but beyond that, our baseline still calls for a, a, a hold Partly because we think this cumulative effects of the monetary policy tightening uh, so far will start taking a bite uh, and, and cause uh, further softening in the labor market. Uh, if uh, you know that doesn't happen, obviously, uh, our call uh, and the Fed's, uh, what we expect the Fed to do uh, will change.
0: Well, we will see. Time will tell. Thank you both yep. for joining. I think that's a great place to close. Institutional investors can read more about these topics on J.P. Morgan Markets or reaching out directly with questions. Stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's Global Research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information including important disclosures. Copyright 2023 J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 6, 2023.